Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, your Shakespearean exploration of better Orlandos than the one in Florida. This week, the original road trip comedy with As You Like It. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 22, Crossdress for Success. Look, you don't know me from Adam, but I was a better man with you as a woman than I ever was with a woman as a man. You know what I mean? James, would you like to give us a plot summary of this most engaging and intriguing and twisted of plots? As you like it, Will. As you like it, I will. Our play begins at the court in a French duchy ruled by the wicked Duke Frederick, who has usurped his brother, Duke Senior, and exiled him to the nearby Forest of Arden. Despite these tensions, Duke Senior's daughter Rosalind and Frederick's daughter Celia are best friends and confidants, a fact that Frederick grudgingly tolerates. Shakespeare adds another layer to the family strife at court through the parallel story of the young Orlando and his envious brother Oliver, two gentlemen who are similarly at odds. The evil Oliver has schemed to have his brother killed by having a larger wrestler break his neck in a match. That plot fails, but introduces Rosalind and Orlando, who fall in love with one another almost at first sight, even though Orlando is too shy to say anything. However, Orlando has to flee to the Forest of Arden with his manservant when Oliver plots to have him killed by setting his house on fire. All is not well in Duke Frederick's household either. He finally decides to give Rosalind the boot in a fit of anger and paranoia. Celia decides to flee with her cousin and best friend, bringing along their fool Touchstone, and in the process they disguise the plucky Rosalind as a man named Ganymede, and Celia as a common girl named Aliena. They set off for Arden as well, seeking safety in their anonymity. In the forest, Orlando falls in with Duke Sr. and his band of outlaws, including the melancholy Jax, and soon takes to writing bad love poetry to Rosalind and posting it on trees throughout the forest. Eventually, Rosalind, in her disguise as Ganymede, runs into Orlando and promises to help him overcome his infatuation by convincing him to roleplay his relationship. Rosalind, pretending to be Ganymede, pretends to be Rosalind, leading to much merriment. Meanwhile, the shepherdess Phoebe has fallen in love with Ganymede slash Rosalind, who rudely shoots her down and tries to convince her to shack up with Silvius, another shepherd who loves her. The court fool, meanwhile, has fallen in love with another shepherdess named Audrey, really the local wench of the Forest of Arden, who is also the object of affection of yet another shepherd named William. Just as the number of love plots couldn't possibly multiply any further, the evil Oliver comes back into the picture in pursuit of his brother, only to be attacked by a lioness and saved by the valiant Orlando. This causes Oliver to have a change of heart, and the brothers reconcile. Oliver sees Celia, dresses Aliena, and falls for her. So, uh, Will, I don't know if you've been keeping track here, but that's four couples, eight people, and a massive amount of confusion for all involved, punctuated by frequent musical interludes. All except for Rosalind, who brings everyone together in her disguise as Ganymede and pledges to solve the problem with magic and a shrewd bit of arbitrage. Orlando pledges to marry Rosalind, and Phoebe pledges to marry Silvius if Ganymede is unavailable, which, of course, he won't be. Everything comes to a head when Hymen, the god of marriage, appears and Rosalind takes off her disguise. Everyone gets married, and word arrives that Duke Frederick has given up the duchy in favor of his exiled brother. All return to court, except for Jax, who decides to pursue the contemplative life alone in Arden. And that, Will, is what happens in this, I would say, fairly confusing comedy by Shakespeare. 
Yes, I think that there is something to be said about the algebraic and exponential quality of throwing more and more couples into the mix in the plot. And uh, that's not even accounting for just keeping all of their names straight. So kudos to you for this uh, most excellent of plot summaries. With that in mind, there's a lot here that seems both new in the figure of Rosalind, who's driving the plot. And there's a lot here that seems familiar and old, going into the forest, lots of uh, mistaken identities, lots of love matches that are happening at increased pace and intensity. Could you unpack that for us a little bit? What is Shakespeare doing here? And how do these characters show any change, if at all? What, what's going on? What's new? What's old? How does this show Shakespeare growing or not in his playwriting at this stage? So I think you've hit on something that feels like even more significant in this play than in other contexts that we've talked about it. I mean, you know, when we talked about Much Do About Nothing, Will, we talked a lot about how it felt like Shakespeare was remixing a variety of elements that he'd played with in earlier plays. And then in that play was finding the right way to blend them together to make the story work. This play, I think, is a little bit more straightforwardly a new take on an old play. When I was reading this one, I just I kept coming back to this feeling that this really is just the inversion of Two Gentlemen of Verona. And I think it's superior to Two Gentlemen of Verona because Shakespeare's craft has evolved and he's doing some more interesting things. And I think the character of Rosalind in particular is like a new and really interesting creation for him. But if you like, just look at the basic setup of the plot, right? I mean, it almost has the feeling of one of these Hollywood movies, right? Where they take a certain kind of trope and they're like, okay, we'll do it. But now with women, you know, in the way that the new Ghostbusters movie, for instance, was we're going to do Ghostbusters again. And like, but we, and we want to reboot Ghostbusters, but now we're going to do it with Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy instead of Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. So the setup of this play with Celia and Rosalind as being best buds, you know, Celia's kind of more skeptical about marriage and about love, while Rosalind sort of immediately falls in love with Orlando, definitely feels to me at least like an inversion of the Proteus-Valentine relationship in Two Gentlemen of Verona. And similarly, as in that play, they kind of run off to the forest you know, much mischief ensues. Parents are drawn into the equation. And look, obviously, the play develops in a different way overall. But the the scenario is very similar to me. Hmm. So now, I think there is a question of why this play works better. And, and I don't know that it does work better necessarily from a plot structure standpoint, like from a narrative standpoint. I think it's just that there's more interesting characters who are doing more interesting things here. Mm. But I, what do you what do you think about that? Did, did you do you see kind of the comparison I'm making or do you think I'm being unfair to this play? I don't think you're being unfair to this play except insofar as Rosalind has a lot more to do and is a lot more of a central engine for the action of the play. Uh, And I think that actually is a little bit different than Two Gentlemen of Verona, even if the basic plot structure and resolution is pretty much identical. I think Rosalind doing the cross-dressing thing and then 
basically doing the matchmaking at the end is pretty amusing, done with a wink and a nod, and she's as 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 you said in the excellent plot summary she is very plucky and much more engaging to watch i think than any of the characters in two gentlemen but that said i basically agree with the contention that the structure is pretty similar and it's taking some old ideas and kind of cranking it up to 11 yeah well let's talk about rosalind in particular because i think i mean between us uh, you you may have a different perspective i think it's actually the character of rosalind that really saves this play from being not very interesting. <laughs> you Correct. know, Rosalind's like a really interesting character. She's so much more intelligent than anyone else in the play. I, I guess I do think also that the relationship between Celia and Rosalind feels like a little bit more good natured and real than the like, you know, the weird competitive relationship between Proteus and Valentine. And that mm-hmm. kind of helps. And, and I also think actually having it be women who are, you know, whose homosocial relationship we're examining actually is kind of more interesting than the I think less sophisticated relationship that those male characters have in Two Gentlemen. Regardless of that one really I think clear advantage of this play that we don't really have in Two Gentlemen is that like it's not hard to understand why Rosalind falls in love with Orlando Mm -hmm. which isn't to say that she's not more intelligent because I think she's clearly more intelligent than Orlando is. Mm. But it's he's not unintelligent, right? It's not like he's a dummy. Whereas Valentine in Two Gentlemen yeah. of Rona, for all that he's kind of a, a nice guy, seems pretty dumb. Orlando doesn't really seem dumb. And also, he's a very good person. So mm-hmm. I, I think in that regard, it's much easier to stomach the way the plot resolution works out. I Sorry, I've gotten far away from from Rosalind, which, so maybe tell you, give me, give me your thoughts on, on Rosalind, Will. I, I'm sorry to, I, I kind of brought no, that No, 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 it's all, it's all good. I mean, I, I feel like in a lot of respects, the women are just better written <laughs> than the men were in Two Gentlemen of Rona. And just in general, I think that if one of the themes, right, of Much Ado About Nothing and some of the other characters, you know, the, the Beatrices and so forth, you do get to see a little bit more sophistication and depth, and particularly in the Celia Rosalind conversations. And you get the sense of a very intimate friendship, you know, if you were to read the lines with a contemporary eye, and perhaps even back then, maybe even more than that between them. But you do get a sense of of real depth in their relationship. And Celia has some good lines and insights as well into her friend's behavior and they talk about the nature of love and whether you can love somebody by their reputation alone. There's a lot of things of that nature that get introduced in some of the conversation here. So it already is, I think, a little bit of a a cut above in a sense Mm -hmm. of some of the more instrumental comedies. I think the issue that I see with this one is it can only take you so far. I feel like you you get up to the last act and uh, it's literally deus ex machina you have hymen arriving yeah well the the god a god of marriage literally appears on stage (laughs) right and and rosalind essentially extracts promises from everybody to marry other people which would be considerably more funny in a madcap screwball sort of way if you could amp it up even further but there's not really all that much conflict in how this thing gets resolved at the end of the day so in some ways i almost feel like the plot of as you like it fails 
Rosalind rather than Rosalind the plot at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. That's sort of my take on this one is there's structural... It's like it's as if Shakespeare took something that structurally has worked for him before, which is mistaken identity, relationships of misplaced affection that all need to be unspooled in some way and then rewoven mm-hmm. together in a pleasing everybody gets their object of affection and right is restored to the universe uh, at the end of the play. That obviously is something he's sticking with, but the characters to me seem like they've kind of outgrown that or at least Rosalind has so I I kind of left it feeling uh, yeah feeling a little bit less charitable towards the plot structure even though I really liked Rosalind and Celia as characters well let me ask you one question Will that has been in the back of my mind but for some reason as you were talking really came forward which is what do you think the cross-dressing in this play is doing And, and I ask that because you know reading the play the cross-dressing is introduced in this way of like Celia and Rosalind are talking about how they're going to run off together after Rosalind is exiled and and they decide that Rosalind should dress as a man because that way they're they're less likely to be attacked. So, mm-hmm. you know, that that's kind of the instrumental purpose of it. But like it's not clear to me like why she needs to still be in disguise once they reach the Forest of Arden why she doesn't declare herself to Orlando. Is there a reason for this other than whatever social critique Shakespeare wants to make in this play? And like, also, is the critique that Shakespeare's making worth this cumbersome of a plot? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to me the way you, the way you frame that. I suppose there's probably some need for continued deception in the forest because it's not exactly... A totally safe place, as we see. Uh, you know, it, it is sort of idyllic in some ways, but if the whole idea of them assuming these identities is to avoid detection and also unwanted male attention in some ways, uh, I mean, I guess it doesn't really work per se. But it you get unwanted kind of, female attention instead, you, Will. Yes, you get Those unwanted local female winches. attention. Exactly. Uh, when Phoebe is ardently, if you would, pursuing Ganymede slash Rosalind, you definitely you definitely realize it doesn't it attracts other types of attention. But um, I guess to go back to what I was setting out to say, I feel like Rosalind is a tough, assertive woman who's willing to strike out on her own. And I think she enjoys the power of being in a uh, man's clothing. And I don't mean that surely for, you know, discussing of fashion and sort of that side of it. I mean more, she is able to assume different roles and not even like in a social sense, but she also gets to play hard to get in different ways. There's the mm-hmm. whole exchange she has with Phoebe where she's essentially saying, yeah, like I know you're totally in love with me, but I have literally no interest in you. There's in fact so little interest that I have in you, but I'm willing to work all of these intricate plots to get everything resolved. I mean, that's something that strikes me as almost a benefit and a credibility that she gets by being a man for a good Mm -hmm. portion of the play. Now, does Shakespeare actually harness that to a really uh, in-your-face social critique of anything? No, of course not. (laughs) You know, he's writing in the 17th century, you know, 16th century, so there's a little bit of that, but it's not in-your-face in the way I think some people might be inclined to read the whole thing. Well, you so, Will, you get at... Uh, in in what you're saying or in what you just said, I think you got at something that actually was one of the really interesting observations I made about the play, 
or one of the things that was most interesting to me about the play, which was that all these characters run away to the Forest of Arden. And the Forest of Arden is portrayed in this extremely idyllic, like, yes, you're right, it, it is dangerous. I mean, there's that conversation, or sorry, there's that line where I think it's Duke Sr. is talking about some of the dangers of the forest. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's idyllic, and there's great freedom there. The Duke, uh, I think in the first moment that we meet Duke Sr., he has this monologue about how the dangers of the forest are superior to the dangers of the court. He says, Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here feel we but the penalty of Adam, the season's difference, the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter wind, which, when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, This is no flattery. These are counselors that feelingly persuade me what I am. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this our life, exempt from public haunts, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brook, sermons in stone, and good in everything. I would not change it. Right, there's there's definitely... Arcadia feel to it, right? Like this is sort of the natural state of man or, or something. And I think, you know, that's just one example. That's the, that's what the Duke says. But I, I, the feeling I think throughout, and tell me if you disagree, that all these characters represent is that there is this great freedom to the forest, right? There is this great freedom to being outside the bonds of mm-hmm. normal social existence. Or the court, in this case defined as the court, but I think like the court is a stand-in sort of for society, right? And yet, at the end, they all willingly choose to submit or, you know, to return to the bonds of society and to those structures. So... Yeah, yeah. No, I... I, I the way you're discussing it raises sort of an, another question or incongruity at the beginning in some ways. I mean, I think it's fair to say you you brought up the homosocial aspects of Two Gentlemen of Verona. I definitely think that the Celia-Rosalind relationship in court has a sort of intimacy to it. It's not necessarily all spelled out, but there's clearly sort of a, you know, sapphic quality to some of the dialogue that occurs. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's overstating that. I think that's something that's been commented on and written about by by many people. But there's clearly... It's interesting the ways in which these characters go on this journey from the constrained places at court, but also a place where they had a degree of freedom, and then go on this journey that ends in marriage and returning to court, where presumably new constraints are placed on them. At the same time, court for some of the characters was kind of a prison, but for others, perhaps less so. And then by going into the forest, you have to assume false identities. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I necessarily have a extremely sharp point on this particular issue, other than to say, if it was intended as this broad-based social critique, and it was meant to be a didactic play, as opposed to a work of entertainment with some interesting observations thrown in, you would have a much more heavy-handed laying down what the duality of the court and the forest mean. Because I think you get a little bit of that, but it's not hammered into your head by the end of the play. I mean, they do return to court after the idyllic aspect. I mean, hey, Duke Sr. doesn't even seem to be all that upset that he's living in exile, right? Yeah. But by the same token, he's very happy to return to court 
and in fact gets all of his boys to go with him, basically. So there's an interesting tension running through there where you get the sense maybe there was an idea that Shakespeare was really engaging with for a period of time or was interested in, but ultimately needed to wrap it up in the last act. Well, I guess I wondered if, and as you said, I I didn't come to a conclusion about it, and, and I think the play resists giving us the opportunity to come to a conclusion about it, in a sense. But I kind of wondered if the way we were supposed to take it ultimately was that these two things, right, the structure of society and the freedom of the natural world are in opposition and in tension, but also are complementary and like in kind of inflect each other, you know, so maybe it's only by experiencing the forest that Rosalind is able to reach an equilibrium in which she can like enter into this marriage with Orlando as equals or, or something. I, I feel like even going that far is probably going in a direction that Shakespeare doesn't really give us license to go to. Yeah, but yeah. that was one thought of like where you could read the critique, I, I guess. Yeah, interesting. You know, and then meanwhile, and Will, I think this raises kind of a, another question about the play that we can get into, but whether or not you agree with this idea that it's being in the forest that allows Rosalind and Orlando to realize their love in a more equal way. One thing that definitely does happen is that when Oliver enters the forest, he is immediately converted to becoming Mm. a good guy again. And then he and Celia immediately fall in love and shack up, right? Right. Which is like its own weird thing. So there is definitely something about the forest that has this deep impact on people. I think also that Celia and... Oliver relationship, it's definitely like just jumped into, right? There's no, Mm -hmm. I think it's even just reported to us by Oliver, right? That, oh, now they've fallen in love (laughs) and they've gotten married or something. So I don't know, did did you have any reactions, Will, to the Celia Oliver situation? Sure. It's actually something that I would extend to lots of the relationships in this play, which is that there often does not seem to be much of a basis in interpersonal relationships for these new pairings to be based upon, right? There's a lot that occurs offstage. There's also a lot that is just declared or stated. Uh, It's almost as if Shakespeare was sort of interested in solving the mathematical problem Mm -hmm. of dealing with all of these lovers who are at odds in various ways and in love with the wrong people and need to be brought into the right sort of alignment without actually doing quite as much of the work to show how that happens through the plot. And that's especially true with all of the Shepherd characters. I mean, I think with Phoebe and Silvius, literally it's as simple as getting Phoebe to pledge that if Ganymede is married or otherwise unavailable— which of course he is not because it is actually Rosalind, then Phoebe will marry Silvius. I mean, that's something that's so... Like, life doesn't really work like that per se, right? Or at least Mm -hmm. not in the compressed time period in which Shakespeare is trying to wrap up all of the stuff, which is hence why you get, I think, the deus ex machina aspect to speed things along. But I guess what's interesting about that and what I think one of the more fascinating questions that the play raises and actually explicitly engages with in the dialogue of the characters is how much love in general is a function of falling head over heels for people as individuals, the love at first sight, the idea that we engaged in discussion uh, about during Romeo and Juliet versus the kind of 
love that emerges out of respect or choice or social circumstance. And mm-hmm. you get the sense that there's a lot of love bonds and love matches being formed here, but you don't really see terribly much love other than in a declaratory sense. So that that was sort of my reaction. I mean, I don't know. Do What do you think about those themes? I mean, what is, is Shakespeare coming down on a particular side? What do you think he's trying to say with all of that? So I do think there's actually a really interesting sociological idea in this. And I, I am actually most interested in it in the context of Rosalind and Orlando, and to a slightly lesser degree, Celia and Oliver. But before getting to that, I, you know, I, I think speaking more generally, I think there is also a psychological idea here about being ready to fall in love and like looking for that. And as opposed to being in a position where you know, where you're resistant to that. And I think I think we'll probably talk about Jax in a little bit, but I think Jax actually is a vital character on this, you know, specifically for this thematic reason, that Jax is this melancholy character. He talks a lot about his melancholy as his own, and that seems to inoculate him against the love contagion. Mm. Whereas with the other characters, it feels like they are, I'm just trying to think of a good way to express this, right, it, it feels like there is just a desire to be in love, you know? And I think, it, like, in the case of Celia, it seems to be a little bit of a type of, like, Rosalind is pairing off with Orlando, and she's losing her friend, and so yeah. she is going to fall in love with Oliver. Yes. Touched, I don't remember, the, the Shepherd characters and, like, the Touchstone-Audrey relationship didn't make a huge impression on me to be honest Mm -hmm. so i'm like struggling to think of how that thematically fits into this idea but i I think there is a sense of you know of of openness to love not necessarily choosing whom you can love but of openness to love enabling like the blossoming of romance sort of Mm. what what, what do you think about that do you think i'm seeing something that's not there or well i do think that there are is this concept of the social contagion and the waves of love that proceed. I mean, you, you do get the sense that there's genuine infatuation going on in this play from a couple different angles. But you also do get the sense with the speed with which the Celia Oliver match is made that it's really just a byproduct can, of can, circumstance. Can I just read Rosalind's speech I, I found, Will, about mm. narrating how how they fall in love. <laughs> Cause I think yeah, it, it yeah, speaks please, very much to, to this question of like sort of love contagion, right? Rosalind says about Oliver and Celia. Nay, it is true. There was never anything so sudden but the fight of two rams and Caesar's thrasonical brag of I came, saw, and overcame. <laughs> With your brother and my sister no sooner met but they looked, no sooner looked but they loved, no sooner loved but they sighed, no sooner sighed but they asked one another the reason, and no sooner found the reason but they sought the remedy. And in these degrees have they made a pair of stairs to marriage, which they will climb incontinent, or else be incontinent before marriage. <laughs> so, sorry, I just, I think that it's actually like a very funnily like expressed. Yes. It's very frank, actually, yeah. in its way, very matter of fact, which is actually somewhat, uh, somewhat endearing, honestly. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it is interesting to see this juxtaposed. I think that you get a little bit of this when Celia and Rosalind are talking at court 
and they're talking about Orlando and how they feel about Orlando, how Rosalind feels specifically about Orlando. And the whole backstory for Orlando and Oliver is that their father, Sir Roland, was a well-respected member of the court and well-esteemed by Duke Sr. And so Rosalind is recounting all of this and saying, well, my father really respected his father. And it gets carried down into this question where Celia is the one who's saying, well, that's just a, a familial relation. That doesn't tell you anything about this person as an individual. And then, of course, Duke Frederick comes in and says, well, you have to leave, Rosalind, because you're related to your father, the Duke, and I can't trust you. So there, there are some really amusing turns and plays with this idea of how much love is based on yeah, so, social connection rather so, Will, than this, love or affection. This, what you're bringing up, this is exactly the sociological thing I, I wanted to talk about with Rosalind and Orlando. Because on the one hand, I think it's, you know, there's no question that it's true. Celia's attitude about family and about the, like, dispositive nature mm-hmm. of Sir Roland being beloved by Duke Sr., meaning that Orlando is worthy of Rosalind's love. Like, that is, I think, self-evidently true in its way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think you can represent that as the, like, family is meaningless, or maybe lineage is meaningless, or I, I don't mm-hmm. know how you want to put it, right? There is a way that that's true, but it's also not not meaningless, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so... The sociological reading that I got out of the Oliver-Rosalind relationship is the idea that, like, they're being from these allied families and Duke Sr.'s love of Sir Roland doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that Rosalind has to fall in love with Orlando. But at the same time, being within the same, I I guess you could even call it social network, Mm -hmm. makes it much easier, right? Like, the existence of those family ties, the existence of, like, those bonds of trust between other people who are significant to you, I think makes it much easier for the connection to happen. So this is, yeah, absolutely. If I can be very pithy about it, Will, like, it's not dispositive, but it is dispositional. Yeah, absolutely. It raises the interesting question, (laughs) an issue on which neither of us are experts, of arranged marriages in general, right? Mm -hmm. Because frequently, you know, my understanding is that those often occur through dense social networks where there's social incentives to kind of figure it out, right? Once you've been matched. And obviously, sometimes it works out well, and sometimes it works out quite horribly. But there is, I think, always this tension in human relationships, and especially when you introduce this this idea of love at first sight or a soulmate, well, there's the question of whether that's a person that just exists in the universe that you need to find, or it's somebody that you forge a relationship with and have cause to have a relationship with. And the deepens over time. Not to yeah. get too um, and look too I, high flight highfalutin about it. But. I, I think uh, my sense from reading Shakespeare's plays, and also my sense from just like observing people in the world and like the relationships my friends and family have had and and have been in, it feels like there's there's both things, right? There's the people who are you know the the Romeos and Juliets, right? Who mm-hmm fall in love despite whatever social barriers there may be or who don't care about social Mm -hmm. barriers. But then I think there's also plenty of people who, you know, they may not control individually. Like they may not be able to say specifically like that person there is the person I'm going to fall in love with. 
like they may not c- control their emotions in that way, but you know, they, they are able to look within certain parameters and sort of calculate social parameters within which they are willing to fall in love or to, you know, yes. to have to forge that kind of relationship. Uh, yeah, I, I, know, I what, definitely what, what think, think that that's true. I mean, I think both of those factors can be present in the same people as well, right? And I think that as you get older, I think you see more of the looking within parameters dimension come to the mm-hmm. fore just because life goes on and people's emotional composition changes to some degree and also just practical circumstance and who you meet changes. But all of that is simply to say, I think that both those dimensions can be present and people, depending on circumstance and personality, can have one predominate or both, you know, in equal measure and are activated by different circumstances. But as you were talking, it it reminds me actually, interestingly, of the relationships that are portrayed in Little Women, where you have some of those characters making choices that are based on economic reality and practicality, but aren't without some consideration for emotion or love either. So there's also an additional element that we're not really talking about, which is the economic dimension, but there's a social component, there's a romantic component, there's sort of practicalities and parameters, as you put it, in which people are sort of running when they try and make these decisions. I think the Mm -hmm. question to which people are honest about acknowledging them varies widely, and the degree to which we're able to sort of convince ourselves that things are purely a love match, well, that often is... uh, Right, yes, I think that's true. I think can be sometimes an illusion, or not an illusion, but it's just, it's not the entire story as well. But I think... Yeah, it's it's like you, people want it to be this like mythological, almost, romance, right? And I think usually... Or not, not usually, but, but I think often it doesn't mean that the love isn't real. It just means that people are, in some part of their psychology, much more pragmatic than they want to even allow themselves yeah, and to I think believe. The, uh, the way you tell that story and think about that story changes over time, too, or the way you sort of experience it, uh, I would say. I mean, I, I just think that that's uh, what I like about Shakespeare. And what I, one thing I do like about this play is yeah. it does show different sides of that coin in ways that are kind of amusing and pithy and quite sharply observed. So to that point, though, let's talk about somebody who resolutely does not want to fall in love and is has penetrating insights to offer from time to time beyond his emo declarations and mourning of the slain deer when he walks onto the stage, which is, of course, Jax. So... James, what's your reaction to this character? Why is he in this play? And what's the purpose of Jax, instrumentally and otherwise, uh, within As You Like It? So I really wanted to talk about this character, Will, because, I mean, I guess to some degree because he, he reminds me strongly of myself and not just in the fact that his name is the Frenchification of the name James. <laughs> you know, so so Jax is... I think there's there's an element of him that is very much like a Brooklyn bearded hipster who you would expect to see (laughs) smoking a cigarette outside a coffee shop, drinking an espresso. Mm. You know, he has a little bit of that vibe. I mean, you use the word emo, which I think is a pretty perfect description. Uh, Like he's kind of a poser. Yes. But I think it's too prejudicial to describe him as being only that. And I think his Mm -hmm. speech on his melancholy 
is important in that regard. You know, he says, I have neither the scholar's melancholy, which is emulation, nor the musician's, which is fantastical, nor the courtier's, which is proud, nor the soldier's, which is ambitious, nor the lawyer's, which is politic, nor the lady's, which is nice, nor the lover's, which is all these, but it is a melancholy of mine own, compounded of many simples, extracted from many objects, and indeed the sundry's contemplation of my travels, in which my often ruminations wraps me in a most humorous sadness. So I think Jack's I think you could either read this as being complete nonsense, and I say this as someone who's very much experienced this, I think you could read this as being a depressed person thinking that their depression makes them unique and special. Mm -hmm. But I think you could also view it as representing a more, not exactly a darker side of the play, but, you know, an acknowledgement that not everything can be light and airy in the way that most of the relationships in the play wrap up. And I think Jack's... I think you could make the argument that Jax is choosing his melancholy. And and I think Mm -hmm. you can certainly read that ending of the play where he basically retreats off into the forest and says, you know, I I don't remember the exact line, but says something like, I don't want to like be a part of this celebration. I think you can read that as him choosing his sadness. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also a, a reading of it and an understanding of it where that person who feels that way and has that depression is unable to make any other choice. Mm. So to me, he's an important part of the unity of the play in reminding us that there is this other reality, that the lightness and the comedy is not a universally experienced thing. And it also, I think, you know, we can talk about to what degree his insights are or are not valid or true, but I think he does provide a little bit of a cynic's more like realistic or pessimistic view of what's going on. So anyway, to, to tell I've, I sort of hijacked yeah. that. Tell, tell me your thoughts. No, no, no. I mean, so I, I actually think that this goes into perhaps the one line in this play that people continue to quote, and it's in fact one of Shakespeare's most famous lines. It actually belongs to Jack's, which is, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. Then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and morning shining face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. Then the lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrows. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths, bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly with good cape and lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turning again towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, 
Sounds everything. There's insight in what Jax has to say to a degree. Now, of course, that speech is actually rather bleak because it's about proceeding through life in different stages before you end in oblivion. Uh, So you have to take a little bit of the dark aspect of it with perhaps a grain of salt. But Duke Sr. keeps Jax around in his court in the woods because he finds Jax's melancholy leads to some philosophical insights from time to time. And that's something that Duke Sr. explicitly says. So there's value, I think, to a degree in some of the issues that Jax raises, which are realistic, fatalistic, pessimistic, choose your adjective. But he does have a sense of not everything, as you said, is light and airy. And certainly life goes on. And these difficult situations that are resolved so quickly and readily, well, let's not forget the beginning of the play involved two pairs of brothers deeply estranged to the point where they're willing to contemplate brutally murdering each other, at least in the case of Oliver and Orlando. Oliver thinking about setting his brother's house on fire with him asleep inside of it. Truly one of the weirdest (laughs) and most gratuitous moments uh, I think we've had in Shakespeare. We've had some very weird and gratuitous moments in these plays. Yeah, it was was weirdly specific, uh, shall we say. But yes, you get into some of that. You get into the fact that people are living in exile. You know, love doesn't resolve all the problems in the world, nor does it resolve individual issues or relationships, even though Shakespeare gives everybody a truly happy ending, except for Jax. And Jax, I believe, is is the messenger of life doesn't necessarily work out like this most of the time. And even for the people for whom it does work out, life continues to be a complicated thing that will go through stages and change over time. And in that sense, I, I do actually think it's a, it's heavy, but in a good sense. It, it offers a little bit of ballast to what otherwise would be such an airy confection that it would be hard to see much value in in it, uh, Mm -hmm. except as the most fleeting of entertainments. I also want to just call out, Will, there's a very funny exchange between Jax and Orlando, who seem to repel each other, uh, where (laughs) Jax says to Orlando, God be with you, let's meet as little as we can, and Orlando Orlando responds, I do desires, we may be better strangers, which I thought was quite funny. And and also, I I guess was interesting to me in the idea, like, Orlando, we get the sense, is kind of the opposite of Jax in being... You know, this very, like, good-hearted, forthright, forthright uh, earnest, earnest guy who, yeah. like, definitely is does not seem prone to these fits of melancholy. And so it, it seems like sort of an oil-and-water situation between them, right? And, and I thought mm-hmm. that was just sort of interesting, not something we have to get into, but just an interesting co- comment on these typologies of, of personality. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the question of whether this is just an airy confection— or has something more profound to say, and to the extent that it does, whether that kind of redeems the play and and secures it a good ranking, how do you stack this one compared to everything that we've read before? Um, so I have to say, I do think that actually, even in our conversation, my appreciation for the play has grown a little bit. I, I wasn't expecting us to have as robust a conversation out of this play as we have had. Nonetheless, I do. I really do not understand why this play is so admired. I, I, I mean, I think this play is viewed by a lot of people as one of the great comedies of Shakespeare, and I, I just don't see it that way. So 
you know, if we're talking about just in the realm of the comedies, it's definitely below Much Do About Nothing. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of, of A Midsummer Night's Dream in, mm. I think it is superior to the comedy of errors, Two Gentlemen Rona, Taming the Shrew, like kind of that valence of comedy by virtue of some of the characters and insights. I mean, I think Rosalind is such a great character. I really like some of the insights that Jax has. And I, and I do think it has that acknowledgement of a, uh, of a more melancholy side of life. But I don't think it has, you know, there was something mysterious about Midsummer Night's Dream that did stick with me. And I don't find that in this play, no matter how much I like Rosalind. So that's sort of my benchmark for it. Then the question becomes, mm-hmm. where does it fall between that and Merry Wives of Windsor? I, I think probably, uh, it's, it's really tough. I, I think probably I do place this just above the Merry Wives of Windsor. So for me, it becomes number 12 between Henry IV Part Two mm. and the Merry Wives of Windsor. And, and that's on the strength of the Rosalind and the, the Jax characters. And um, yeah. on that note, Will, as much as I like Jax and some of his observations, I, I don't think there's any getting away from Rosalind as the MVP of this play. What do you think? D- does that all yeah. hold true to you? No, or? no, that all, that all makes sense. I really go back and forth with this one in terms of how low I want to rank it because it definitely wasn't my favorite to read by a long shot. I think I enjoyed it more than Merry Wives of Windsor. I think it's definitely got more interesting yeah, Will, things Will, to Will, Will, Will. Go, you, you, go for it, please. Give yeah, us a no. truly controversial ranking. It's tough. It's tough because uh, there are some of the ones that I now have lower down that I actually enjoyed more, I have to say than this one in terms of the actual reading. And yet I'm imprisoned by comparing it to the other comedies to a degree. Because I, I do think it's better than The Comedy of Errors. And I do think it's better than The Merry Wives of Windsor. But is it really better than Titus? I don't know. I guess I'm leaning towards putting it at 14, but there's a steep drop off between my 13th place, which is Henry VI Part One and the rump of my list, which I think is is pretty bad, or things that I just did not care for. So I'm going to stick this one at 14. Above King John, your favorite play. Astonishing. (laughs) King John, better than people give it credit for, I think. But yes, I think the answer is obviously Rosalind is, uh, is MVP for this one. There's no getting around that. Cool. On that note, James... Do you have a recommendation for us this week? I do, Will. Just a couple of nights ago, I watched a film called Promising Young Woman, which is a thriller slash comedy directed by Emerald Fennell, who people may know from directing a bunch of the series Killing Eve. This movie stars Carrie Mulligan as a medical school dropout who has been deeply impacted by an experience, not something that happened to her, but that happened to a very close friend of hers, also in medical school, and it, you know, it becomes a social thriller type movie and like kind of in the get out <laughs> vein. And the movie is not perfect, but I think it's a really interesting, both cultural artifact in terms of like what are big questions that we're talking about mm-hmm. right now in our society. But also, if you can get past some of the obvious plot holes in the movie is a really effective and... The, the way I would put it is that it enabled me to access the kinds of emotions that people have ex- who have had these experiences and mm. these traumas go through 
even though there are plot holes or, you know, some narrative issues, I think if you take it in that spirit of like looking for the emotional expression that it's making, it's actually quite powerful. So don't watch it. You know, don't watch it on a day that you're just looking for something light to, to turn on. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that it's a 10 out of 10, but uh, I enjoyed it. I think it's well made and it's worth considering the things that it's talking about. Sounds very interesting. Uh, what's the recommendation again? The film Promising Young Woman, directed by Emerald Fennell. Thank you, James. And that's our show. Next time on Barflies, will we or will we not be talking about Hamlet? We will be, in case you couldn't tell. Thanks for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.